Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. You'll find that on page 6 of your pew Bible. We'll be looking at the last half of chapter 8 and the first half of chapter 9. This covers a really significant time in redemptive history since we pick up the account immediately after the flood. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the clean animals and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together as we prepare to approach God's holy word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to sit beneath the teaching and preaching of your word. And we pray that as we do, you would remind us that 
Though we all come through these doors this morning experiencing and feeling a number of different things, some of us burdened by the cares of this life, some of us uh, feeling the great distance in our lives from what we claim to be and what we actually are, others of us excited and anxious to be with your people and still others with great questions and doubts and skepticism. Uh, However we find ourselves this morning, Father, we pray that you would be kind to us as we approach your word and that you would remind us and reveal to us that we really are all the same. We really are all far more broken than we could ever imagine ourselves to be. And so together we stand in need of the same thing the hope of the gospel, to be reminded that it can be true that at the same time we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, that we are also in Jesus because of what he has done for us, far more accepted, far more secure, far more approved of than we could have ever dared to dream hope. And so we pray that you would take us to this good news this morning and that you would transform us by it, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You may be seated, and the children ages three to first grade, you are dismissed to Children's Church now. You'll make your way to the back of the sanctuary, be taken to your class. Uh, A preacher I I love to quote, great 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once remarked that there is no more up-to-date book in the world than this old, old book we call the Bible. Um, And he went on to say, it is concerned about men and women. It's concerned about all of us, just as we are and where we are. And it speaks to our very condition, and it holds before us a way of life. There is no more up-to-date book in the world than this old, old book we call the Bible. Um, And here we're in a familiar, an old familiar story, the story of Noah and the flood. And like Martin Lloyd-Jones, I want to tell you that this story is concerned about you. It's concerned about us as men and women. And it's a story that speaks to us where we are. It speaks to our very condition. And, And this particular story holds before us a way of life, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Um, Last week, if you happen to be here, um, we looked at the beginning of this story of Noah and the flood. And as we were looking at the beginning of this story, we were talking a lot about, um, and and we were spending our time considering God's judgment on the earth and on mankind. But in Genesis 8 through 9, in these chapters that were read for us earlier, the flood is over. And mankind and the animals, uh, they, they leave the ark and they re-enter the world. So what's this story about? Um, it's not about judgment. Um, this story is about God recreating the world. Um, he has, it's a story about Him giving a fresh start to humanity and His world. Um, it's about new beginnings. It's about uh, uh, His work of recreation and restoration. Um, there's an awful lot of TV shows that you can find nowadays about um, recreation and restoration, right? Uh, we're fixing up homes and 
landscapes and yards and we're finding antiques uh, and restoring them to their original condition and state. Um, American Pickers, I don't don't know if any of y'all watch that show, but um, it's a show about scavenging for these valuable antiques to restore. And there was this one episode where they went out and they found this old motorcycle. And so they, they purchased the old motorcycle and they brought it back and the guy, and they give it to a guy so that he can appraise its value. And um, the guy who's appraising this motorcycle, as he's going through the process, he, it suddenly hits him and he realized that he once owned this very motorcycle. And he had bought it and he had restored it and he had sold it and now it had come back to him. Um, and realizing it, uh, he got really emotional. Um, and passionate. Uh, he even got teary, which under normal circumstances, it would be weird to watch a guy cry over a motorcycle, I, I think. Um, but, for so, it, but it felt really, really appropriate watching this show um, because he was seeing this thing that he had poured so much time, so much energy and work and care into to restore it to its former glory, it, it just made sense that he would be passionate about it and emotional and even weepy about it. The story of the Bible, the story of the Bible is a story of God who bound his heart to his creation, to us. And, it, and we saw this last week, we were looking at the beginning of this story. It filled his heart with pain. It filled his heart with sorrow because he had tethered his heart to humanity. And he saw what humanity was doing to itself and to his world. Um, And and so our passage today comes to tell the story of God giving mankind and his world this new beginning. uh, Restoration, recreation. Um, It's it's a story that speaks to us where we are today. Um, It's a story that holds before us a way of life. Because you see, into the dawn of this restored world, God comes and He calls Noah into three primary relationships. And He holds before us those same relationships as a way of life. And only if you maintain these three relationships can you live the fully human life God intends you to live. So here are those three relationships and consequently our three points this morning. So first... God calls us into a a healing relationship with the earth. Second, God gives us a basis for our relationships with all people. And then third and finally, God gives us a sign of a relationship of grace with himself. So first, a healing relationship with the earth. Um, God intends, we're told in this story, he intends to heal the earth And he invites you to participate in that healing. Um, The first hint of it comes in chapter 8, verse 21, where God said he'll never again curse the ground. Um, And then later on in chapter 9, that he'll never again destroy the the earth with with a flood. And, you know, I confess that for a long time, I've totally misunderstood that. uh, Because I always read it like a threat. Um, something like, I won't strike down life that way again. Wink, wink. Um, 
you know, I'll destroy it in some other yet-to-be-determined way. Um, and, and that actually might be a fair reading if that's the only verses we had in this passage. Um, but in chapter 9, God express, expresses it positively, right? Verse 10, God says that he will establish a covenant, a covenant. We're going to come back to that word. It's a big word. A covenant with the birds, with the livestock, and every beast of the earth. And then I'm not going to read all these verses. And then he repeats this same promise to the earth and to the creatures of the earth in verse 11, verse 12, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17. That's what you call emphasis to make a point, right? See, God wasn't saying, just you wait. You know, I'll strike down the earth in another way. What he is saying here is he's saying, I am absolutely committed to healing, to restoring, to recreating and renewing the earth and never destroying it again. Covenant is a really important word in the Bible. And um, I'm just going to give you a very basic definition this morning. Whenever God calls someone into a covenant... He's calling them into a redeeming and saving relationship. But it's not just people he's making a covenant promise to here. It's to the earth and to every living creature. I want you to catch what this is saying. This is saying that your sin and mine, its effects are cosmic. Right. Of course, our sin, we could say, make the point, we'll do it in another sermon at some point, that our sin is very self-destructive. And of course, our sin is destructive to community and to relationships, right? But this is saying the creatures, the earth, the trees, the birds, the beasts, the stars, they feel the destructive effects of your sin and mine. Right? Our sin has sent a rippling shockwave into creation itself. And it's impeding and damaging God's world. And God intends, He's telling us, He intends to save the world. Not from its sin, but from your sin and mine. George Whitfield <clears throat> once said, or he asked, Have you ever noticed that when you get close to God's creatures, that they growl and they bark and they bare their teeth at us. Chapter 9, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Here's what Whitfield said after he asked that question. He said, God's creatures growl at us because they know we have a quarrel with their maker. Right, Paul wrote to the Romans, That our sin has subjected creation to futility, to bondage, to decay. Creation is groaning for our redemption, right? They're waiting eagerly expecting this day of our redemption when we and everything else will be fully and finally healed. The psalmists and prophets like Isaiah, right? They looked forward to a day when the mountains and the hills would burst forth into song and the trees of the fields would clap their hands, right? Today, today, 
we can look at creation and its majesty. And it speaks and it reveals God's glory and His power. And that's today. You think about it, that's today in a broken, fallen, and groaning world. Can you even imagine what a liberated creation will be like one day? When the mountains, the rivers, and the trees, and the oceans are fully healed, and they break forth into song, singing God's praise. Listen, we've got to move on to the other points, but I want you to think with me about something before we end this point here. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Most of us remember that from the Lord's Prayer. Those are not two separate prayer requests. That's one request. We're to pray for heaven to come down to earth. We're to plead with God that his will in heaven be done here on earth. In order that life would be as it should be, right? It's saying this, the the prayer request is saying, God, help us. Help us to do your will here and now on earth. And God's will, this passage is telling you, is a liberated and healed creation. A creation that sings his beauty and glory and majesty. Right, Genesis 8 through 9, they're an echo of Genesis chapter 1. You see it all throughout the passage if you pay attention to it. In the recreated, restored world, we're to exercise dominion over God's creation again. We are to cause it to flourish. Right? We are to cooperate with God's plan to save the earth. Right? To heal its scars and its wounds. Now, we've got to move on, but I'll just ask this question. How is it that you are involved in a healing relationship with the earth? What are you doing to help God's creation go on speaking and go on singing about His glory and His majesty? See, to be living a fully human life, you have to be engaged in this relationship. Because if you're not, you're not caring about the things God cares about. And He cares about restoring His world to its former glory. Okay, second, let's move on. Into this restored and recreated world, God gives us a basis for relationship with all people. Um, It's very dangerous if you're a parent of young children. It's very dangerous when your children discover uh, the power of the word why. Um, Because that little word, three letters, one little word, and with it, they can drag out every conversation. Right. Um, I remember a few years ago a conversation I had with one of my kids when I was getting ready uh, to leave the house and come into the office at work, and uh, and it went something like this. I said, "What you doing, Daddy?" Um, I said, "Well, I'm putting on my jacket. I'm getting ready to go to work, uh, you know, or something like that." I said, "Why?" Well, because I have to go to work today. And why? Uh, because that's my job. Uh, why? Because I have to provide for our family. Um, Why? Because God called me to be a pastor. Why? And at that point, I was like, Jennifer, get in here. Um, I need your... I got a question for you, right? One one little word, why? (laughs) 
And I'm like, I'm questioning my calling in life with that. You know, it like took 30 seconds to get to the root issue, right? And needed my wife's help. See, the word why, it, it digs deep. It penetrates beneath the surface, right? It reveals purpose. It reveals the basis, right? Um, it, it, it's tempting for us in our modern world to come to Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, and get distracted by our contemporary concerns. So Genesis 9, 5 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And it's very tempting for us to start thinking about things like, I don't know, capital punishment, um, maybe just war theory or um, uh, self-defense or something like that. But God is not commenting on the power of the state here. God isn't making remarks about government policy here in Genesis chapter 9. Um, for one thing, he says he's going to require a reckoning from even every animal that takes the life of man. I have no idea how he's keeping up with that accounting or, or how that happens. But, but I believe it. It's happening. See, the bigger issue here in this passage, and the deeper point, is really an answer to the question, why? And that comes at the end of verse 6. For or because God made man in his own image, right? Again, you hear the echo back to Genesis chapter 1. This is a recreated world. Um, the basis for our relationships, God is saying, is that all mankind has been given value, dignity, glory, and honor because they are made in God's image. God is saying that we are to value life wherever we find it because God values all of human life. And this, listen, this means... That every human being, smart or stupid, attractive or ugly, conservative or liberal, male or female, rich or poor, black or white, every human being has value and dignity and honor and is to be treated with such. Right? Physically taking someone's life, that's at the very tip of the iceberg, Right? Being pro-life, it's not less than protecting unborn children, but it is so much more than that. Right? Every time you look down on the poor in arrogant superiority, you are taking a life. You are tearing into and ripping into God's image. Every time you refuse to stand up for the oppressed, you're an accomplice to the destruction of life. Every time you tear someone's reputation down through gossip or slander, every time you live for your own comfort to the detriment of someone else's, every time you ignore people you think aren't cool, you are tearing into God's image. You are taking life from others. You know, many of you know that our, our church is, is really involved with Cordova Elementary School and we're involved with the students and the teachers and the admin, administration there. And, and some of you are very involved with, with that ministry. Um, we're at that school a couple of days every week. Um, and it's a school where over two-thirds of the student population um, come from homes that fall below the poverty line, right? 
And I, I've said this a million times and I'll keep on saying it. We are not serving them so that they'll show up at our church one day. I mean, that, maybe that does happen in the future. And great if it does. But we aren't serving them so that we can feel better about ourselves for serving them. We are serving them just to serve them. Period. Because they are the disadvantaged in our community. Right? And it would be easy to forget them. It would be easy to ignore them. But we're there to affirm their dignity, their value, their honor being made in God's image. And many of you are involved in that ministry, and we're very thankful for that. And to be honest, many more of you should be. Because this is what we're about here at Grace Community Church. Figuring out how to serve the broken and the disadvantaged in our community. Look, I recently read an article where the author, he commented on the peculiar ability of those living in the suburbs to create, this is the quote, a fictitious world for ourselves. Um, See, what he's saying is we can easily find ourselves living in the suburbs in bubbles of comfort and ignoring the immense amount of suffering that is around us, right? A school just a mile or two away from this building, right, whose population primarily draws from the government housing projects is just one example. But my question is, do you have eyes to see? Because once you open your eyes to see, you are going to be confronted with intense struggles of grief and of loneliness and of sickness and divorce and disability and substance abuse and unwed mothers and abused children and financial hardship and deep isolation. It is all around us. And that's just to mention a few. Look, almost 20 years ago, when I moved, uh, when I moved, I think it was 20 years ago. Well, anyway, I'll have to do the math later. Can't do it on the spot. Um, I need my iPhone. Um, but, uh, I moved to Jackson, Mississippi to go, go to seminary, and part of the deal was when I moved to Jackson, Mississippi to go to seminary, I took a job in this tiny little town outside of Jackson called Crystal Springs, Mississippi, and I was an assistant to the pastor there. One of the perks of this job was they gave me this little rent-free house that sat behind the church, and it was like 700 square feet, maybe. Um, it, was, it was this tiny little house, and um, it's a... I was, just, I was very busy, um, you know, I was learning Greek or Hebrew or whatever it was at the time, and I was trying to do all the stuff at the church and all that kind of stuff, and so a couple of months in, it's probably, you know, September, October, October, we're getting ready, I'm getting ready to take the youth in the church on our first weekend trip to some conference or something like that, and so the plan was to have all the youth come and meet me at my little house behind the church, and then we'd get into the church bus, and we'd, we'd go on our, our trip, and so I was getting ready to leave, and this one kid, uh, Britt Thomas, um, I'm hoping he listens to this one day, um, he showed up early uh, that day, and, um, and so I'm running around packing and one of the things I have to do before I leave is I, I've got to do the dishes because they've really mounted up in the sink. I'm a single guy at this time. And, um, you know, previous to this, I had actually, I threw, this is shameful, I threw away a ton of pots and pans and dishes 
just because I was like, it's so disgusting, I don't want to wash them. But anyway, on this particular weekend, I know that's bad, uh, but on this particular weekend, I was going to wash the dishes. And so I had one side of the sink filled up with the soapy water, and the dishes were in there, and then the other side of the sink, I was rinsing them off after I washed them, and then I was putting them on a towel on the counter to be put up later after they dry, right? And so I'm doing that, and I can feel this kid just staring at me. And um, so I, I tell him, you know, make yourself useful while you're here. Start putting some of these dishes up in the, in the cupboard or whatever. And that's when he asked me, he said, why don't you use the dishwasher? And um, I said, I don't have a dishwasher. Um, and he said, well, then what's that? And uh, I backed up from the sink and right, just to the right of the sink, there's this dishwasher that I, I never saw for two months. Um, I had... I had thrown away dishes, um, all kinds of... I didn't know I had it. Um, I was too busy to see it, right? Um, I know that makes me look really stupid. But, um, but anyway, my question to you this morning is, what would happen if you slowed down and opened your eyes to the suffering that surrounds you in this life, in your neighborhood, even in your home, at your workplace, in the suburbs, wherever it is. About a month ago, one of my neighbors um, on my street, they foreclosed on their home and they disappeared in shame. Um, It happened really, really quick. And it caught me off guard. And um, I had no idea the struggles that my next door neighbor was having. And I should have known. I mean, my eyes should have been opened to their suffering. And I want to challenge you to try something this week. If you would just make it your goal this week to open your eyes to seeing the brokenness that is around you in people's lives. And I'm not asking you to do a ton. I'm asking you to do one thing this week. If you could just do one thing to move towards someone who is struggling, to move towards someone who is different from you. I mean... Find ways to affirm that person's dignity and value and honor. Because God has given you a basis for all your relationships. He has marked all of us with the image of God. And so we need to find that and value it and affirm it. Okay, finally, let's get to our last point here. God gives us a sign of a relationship of grace with himself. Okay, in Genesis chapter 6, you just got to think back a couple of chapters. We're told that God exercised his judgment because he saw man's wickedness, right? And that every, some of you will remember this verse, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually, only evil continually. And I asked this last week, and I'll I'll ask it again this this morning. Um, What did Noah bring on the ark, right? Uh, he brought animals on the ark. Yes, that's correct. What else did he bring on the ark, right? He, he brought his family. Yes, that's right. What else did he bring on the ark? And you might say, well, he probably brought food on the ark for the animals or whatever. But what else? What else did he bring? Noah brought his sinful heart onto that ark, right? God gave Noah and his family this restored, recreated world But there was still a lingering problem, mankind's heart, 
Right, chapter 8, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. We talked about that. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Right, chapter 8 tells us that as soon as Noah stepped off the ark with the animals, right, he built an altar and he offered burnt offerings. Burnt offerings are for making atonement for sins. Right, I feel, I, I should, well, I feel like I need to make atonement for sins if I'm in the car for six hours with my family, much less a year, right? I I don't know what Noah was thinking, but he was definitely aware of his sin and his brokenness, right? He's making these burnt offerings, right? Um, And so a burnt offering is all about saying, God, I realize that I deserve to go up and smoke like this animal um, on the altar. And it's saying, receive this death substituted for me. In my place. And verse 21 says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Okay, later today, do yourself a favor. Open up your Bible to Leviticus, because you probably haven't read through Leviticus in a long time. Um, But if you do that, you're going to see this phrase everywhere, right? A pleasing aroma to the Lord over and over and over with every sacrifice. Why is that? Why is it when bulls or goats or sheep or whatever, right, um, are are consumed on the altar that it produces a pleasing smell to the Lord? Let me tell you, it has nothing to do with the literal smell of bulls and goats and sheep. What God loves is the smell of substitution. He loves to rescue. He loves to redeem. He loves to save through substitution. And if you get that, and you understand that, then you'll be able to understand the sign of grace that God gives. So chapter 9, verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God's covenants always have signs, right? We saw one this morning in baptism. The water was a sign, right? We'll see another in just a couple of minutes at the Lord's Supper, right? The bread and the wine, they are signs of Jesus' body and blood, right? A sign is a symbol. A sign is a picture, right, of God's saving grace, The English Standard Version that we read this morning actually does a great job in this translation because other versions translate bow as rainbow, which it's fine that they do. It's not like a big problem because it's very obvious that that's what God's talking about here, right? But the Hebrew word that's there isn't the Hebrew word for rainbow. It's the Hebrew word for a war bow, right? Now now listen, because I want to pull this together for you. It's the smell of substitution that is a pleasing pleasing aroma to God, which is why God's war bow isn't aimed down at you, but is aimed up and into the heart of heaven itself. Right? It is aimed into the heart of God's own Son who would come to be a substitute for us. It's a sign of God's commitment to a relationship of grace with you. You know what's interesting about rainbows? You need a storm to get one, right? 
You'll never find a rainbow on a sunny day. We might get one today. I don't know. Um, But there wasn't one yesterday when it was all sunny, right? You need clouds. You need rain. You need stormy weather to get a rainbow. And you always find a rainbow, right, where the sun and the storm come together. Now, listen, here's where I want you to look beyond Noah just for a moment. Where is it that the sun and storm come together. When Jesus was crucified, there was a storm. Darkness. Man, that was perfectly timed. Darkness. (laughs) Never get that again. I had to say something about it. Um, But anyway, Jesus on the cross being crucified, right? Darkness fell on the land, right? The rocks split. The earth shook. God was pouring out his wrath and his justice and his judgment on Jesus. And at the same time, the sun was shining because God's own son was consumed instead of you, instead of me. He was consumed as a substitute in our place because it's at the cross where mercy and judgment meet and collide. It's at the cross where grace and justice come together. It's at the cross where love and justice embrace and kiss. Listen, you'll never be able to care about the things God cares about You'll never be able to enter into a healing relationship with the earth. You'll never see or move towards the unlovely and broken people who are around you. You will not be able to do it until you see how much he loves and cares for you and what he has done for you. It's when you find that that you'll find the freedom to live the fully human life God intends you to live. Okay, we talked about Noah. We looked beyond Noah. Let me, to Jesus. Now, last little thing here. I want you to look even beyond that, okay, for just a moment. And we have to say something about that. This, the most famous rainbow song of all has to be Somewhere Over a Rainbow, right? Uh, Dorothy sings it in The Wizard of Oz. Um, Let me just remind you of a few of those lyrics, okay? Nobody sing it. I'm not going to try to sing it. Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Way Up High. There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue, and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. Somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly, so on. Um, You've heard the song before, right? I hope you recognize, I really do hope you recognize the deep longing in your heart for a place like that. I mean, Dorothy longed for it. She dreamed for it. She hoped for it. But you know what the final message of Wizard of Oz is? It's actually a pretty depressing message. There's no place like home. Right? She dreamed of a land beyond the rainbow, but in the end, Kansas was as good as it gets. No better home. Seriously. I'm not even trying to be funny here. I guess some of you have been to Kansas. I don't know. Uh, Listen. Here's what Noah and the Bible are saying. They're saying, your instincts are right. And they are dead on. Your dreams are dead on. There is a better place. There is a better home. There is a dream of a world one day that is put right and fully healed 
And that dream is coming true. There's a place where skies are blue and all that kind of stuff, right? In the end, Noah's restored and recreated world, it was just a taste of what's to come. Because one day, someday, Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he will fully and completely and finally heal every scar and every wound of his world. And he will fully mend every fractured relationship in your life. And he will dwell with us forever. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Then we just sing this. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. It's when you take this good news deep into your heart and you let it begin to heal your heart that it will make you what you were meant to be. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel this morning. We thank you that we find it written even in the 8th and ninth chapter of Genesis. We thank you for the way in which Noah points us forward to look at Jesus and even beyond to his second coming. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel, that it would find a home deep in our heart. And it would indeed change us, that it would set us free to care about the things that you care about, your world and our relationships and and our relationship with you. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.